Ivan and Phoebe are actually names of two people. Well, one is a made-up name. Phoebe doesn't exist as a name in, in Ukraine. And uh, it's about a couple. He takes part in this revolution and then he comes back to his native town, which is my native town of Uzhrod. Of course, his parents insist that he should marry because there's nothing else to do in Ukraine, Soviet Union, you know. Get born, get married, get buried, and that's pretty much it. Howdy there, dear listeners. This is your host, Matt. Back in December, I had on Dr. Oksana Lutsushina, who is our professor here at Kreese at UT Austin. We talked about her latest book, Ivan and Feba, as well as some of her older work and what her inspirations are as a writer. And it was only after we recorded that we found out that Dr. Lutsushina had actually been nominated for Ukraine's highest state prize for the arts, the Shevchenko National Prize for Literature for her latest book. And two weeks ago, she actually won the award. So in light of that event, please take a listen. I'm sure that you'll enjoy it. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. I am here with a UT professor that I and so many of my fellow grad students really adore and admire, Dr. Atsana Sushina. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I think the natural place to start off is congratulations because you won the most prestigious literary prize in Ukraine for literature for your book, Ivan and Feba. Thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, a pleasant shock, I guess I should say. <laughs> It's uh, a book about the Revolution on a Granite, which is an event that most Americans certainly don't know about. But may- maybe to the surprise of many, apparently a lot of Ukrainians, I mean, they've heard of it, but they don't really particularly know about what it actually was. And I mean, this includes even young children in Ukraine who said that, you know, they didn't learn about it particularly in school. And when you were describing one of your missions for the book, you said that like one of the most basic mention- missions was actually just like, building this this uh, step-by-step connection between the Ukraine of that time and the problems of the Ukraine of that time to, to today. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this revolution on the granite. It's related to things going on today. Well, actually, many Ukrainians don't know about it. I mean, my mom didn't know about it. <laughs> so it's uh, because it happened before the Facebook revolutions. And despite its importance, uh, it's uh, not as remembered as others. It, it was it literally 30 years ago, about, about now. So it happened, it started on October 2nd, 1990. And it lasted until October 18th-ish. Uh, so basically, it was a hunger strike that was uh, staged by some students from Lviv Polytechnical University, Kiev University, and I believe Dnipropetrovsk University, Dnipropetrovsk. So they, mostly the, the driving force was Lviv students. They were the, the most uh, numerous cohort. The leader, Markian Vashchishin, kind of came up with this idea of a nonviolent protest. They were inspired, actually, by the events of uh, Tiananmen Square in 1989. And even before that, they were looking at other nonviolent revolutions. They actually, one of their main uh, inspirations was Mahatma Gandhi. And uh, their goals were to, well, they couldn't explicitly say for Ukraine to be independent and stop being part of the Soviet Union, but uh, but all the, all the demands that they have put forth were pretty much relating to that, that Ukraine does not sign the treaty, which again, it was a kind of like a le- legal issue there, like whether we sign a treaty with the Soviet Union, whether we don't sign a treaty with the Soviet Union. You know that Soviet Union was usually way more than just a party with which you sign a treaty. I mean, if it brings on tanks and good luck with signing or not signing. <laughs> but then there were other demands, like for for example, that uh, Ukrainian men were not be drafted to the Soviet army and sent to serve somewhere in, you know, faraway region that they only do it within the territory of Ukraine and some other some other important things. And also that the government should resign. So, of course, when they just appeared on the square, the authorities were kind of laughing and just ignoring them. Not even They were not even trying to physically remove them. They were literally laughing. It's just like, oh, what are these young fools doing? These uh, guys came with, you know, some uh, materials like banners, and uh, they just kind of occupied what what is now called the Independence Square, Maidan, in 
Kiev, but it used to be called Plosha Zhuknavy Revolutsi, which is the plaza of October Revolution, which is the, the Russian Revolution, which never even happened in Kiev. So. <laughs> it's kind of the, the paradoxes of right. colonial yeah. and post-colonial life. You know, I I was actually listening to, uh, for, for, for one thing I'm writing, I was listening to this uh, rock band called Bravo. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's a no. kind of late Soviet, early Russian time. Uh, you might have heard about Valery Sutkin. He's one of the singers. Yeah. So anyway, there's this song, and they're very nice. They're sort of like this rockabilly, if you know what that means in the musical terminology. It's kind of like rock and roll plus country-ish. Right, right, They right. play banjo. And so they have this song, uh, and it's, it's called Moskovsky Beat. And it's about how the whole country, which already doesn't exist because it's already the 1990s, is singing the Moscow Beat. And then they kind of bring up some names of towns. And they, the first pair is Kiev i Magadan. And then it's like Yalta Yerevan. And I'm like, why is Kiev somehow paired with Magadan? <laughs> That's one thing. And the second thing is like this whole country here is Moscow beat and just like kind of gets out on the streets. This is Stilaga music, which uh, is uh, it is kind of like, you know, soft skill of colonization. Like you don't always need to have like a strong hand. You sometimes have music and that's that's enough. And returning to these uh, students, uh, that that was informational uh, uh, for for a while. It was blocked as a kind of a you know an event. Uh, all information agencies ignored it. So, uh, and then in other cities, if people were not part of some sort of dissident circles or circles close to dissident circles, they just they had no clue what what was happening. They didn't hear they, about it, right? They might have heard there were students on a hunger strike, but they couldn't understand what was actually going on. So. Right. And you bring up the hunger strikes. I think it's important to mention that it was also surprising for authorities when these people like set up tents and camps and tried to start saying there because, I mean, that, that's happened in protests before, but that would later become like one of the hallmarks of protests in Ukraine. Right. But with regard to the hunger strikes, that's the source of this double bind that I read about that I, I was not even fam familiar with, where uh, there were female participants in the protests who wanted to come and wanted to protest and wanted to, you know, be uh, as, as part of it as possible. But there was this paradox where <laughs> they didn't want them to actually, the women to participate in the hunger strike because they were supposed to be uh, like, they're, they're the most passionate uh, and I, you know, ideal women who are these patriots and therefore they should be the ones who carry literally through childbearing, carry through like this new generation of the, patriotic, positive, optimistic Ukraine or, or something uh, like that. And so there's this paradox where precisely because they're the most brave and patriotic, they're exactly the ones who are barred from participation. Um, and so, I, I mean, and, and I and I was wondering, do you think that there's still, I mean, how, how, how is that reflected in kind of the protest today? Are there still these elements and you know, how has the, the modern protest movement in Ukraine dealt with this past where there's been these contradictions? Well, whoever I talked to would pretty much deny it, except for women themselves. But then if you talk to men or even people who were in some way connected with the student movement, but not necessarily in the sense of, you know, themselves took part in the revolution, you know, them uh, not be aware of the problem at all or just kind of say like, oh, you're just making it up. Everybody was just a Ukrainian patriot as if being Ukrainian patriot somehow blocked out whether you had some feminist affiliations or not. I mean, it's a culture where, I mean, in most cultures, feminism is an F word, but in Ukraine it's definitely an F word. So that's why people would coin this phrase, I'm not a feminist, but, which basically means I'm a feminist, but I don't want to be yelled at for being a feminist. So yeah, so uh, the women that I talked to all said that, well, I mean, they were not, not speaking about it in any kind of resentful ways. They were just, as a matter of fact, saying, well, hey, yeah, it was a nationalist patri patriarchal kind of movement. And, you know, we, we knew that that's what it was. And you're right, they did fight indeed for the right to be on a hunger strike because 
because actually even our politicians would, no matter from what camp, the Soviet or the dissident, they're like, but women, women should not be on a hunger strike because female organism cannot take it. They have to produce children. Because if a woman cannot produce children for Ukraine, I guess, what what's she good for? <laughs> so, nobody asked the Ukrainian male if he's capable of producing children or how many have he fathered. Mm. But then before that, even these women had to fight for their right to even be on the actual Maidan. Because the people who came to occupy it and to put tents on, on it were, were men. Uh, and actually, uh, this tent thing, again, this is not accidental because people who were the inspiration behind the Maidan, the Lvivske Studentske Bratstvo, Student Brotherhood, or I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant, uh, don't want to use the word fraternity because it has completely different connotations in English, but it's totally not that kind of fraternity. <laughs> so, which is hilarious because this brotherhood included women. Now it's, you know, it's a brotherhood, but women are kind of brothers, you know. So they, uh, they they had a culture of this kind of camping because they went around Ukraine for years before this action. It was not their first activity where they would go and look for uh, some graves of, you know, people who fought the Soviets long ago or anybody else or just kind of restoring some uh, historical sites in Zaporizhia and other places. So they were used to this sort of, they, they had a structure. It was not uh, done specifically for this one occurrence. You know, the cooking was not part of the thing because they were, well, not all of them, but the, the ones that were inside the camp were on hunger strike. Then there were, of course, people who were the guards, people who were the medics, but they had to go eat somewhere outside. And the women were not allowed to be there. And then on the 2nd of October, it was just men. But then on the 3rd, uh, one woman came because she brought the flag and then she called others and the others came too. You, you pointed out, I think, in one interview that the so-called liberals or even nationalists were in agreement with the communists on this point that they didn't they didn't want these women <laughs> hunger striking and how like how ridiculous that is looking back. And so that, that leads me to this question of what, what was one of your main motivations for writing this book? Because I could imagine you writing a very similar book about lovers at the time of the Maidan revolution, the recent one, or the Orange Revolution. And so why did you feel it was important to go back to this this revolution? Well, the problem is once you get a little bit uh, further, then you realize that you should have gone even further because none of it has been reflected upon. You know, I have this friend, he's a Ukrainian writer, Stepan Pertsuk. He writes these novels. He wrote a novel about the 70s. And then he realized that uh, it's impossible to write a good novel about the 70s before you write the novel about the 60s. <laughs> so then he started writing a novel about the 60s. He wrote it, but then he realized he didn't get things right because there was no novel about the 50s. <laughs> so now he's and then you go back to Athens. <laughs> exactly. And- yeah, but in, in the case of Ukrainian history, it's because of the colonization and then totalitarianism on top of it. Of it it's, it's so hard to... Um, even interpret simple facts because the facts are, even if they are there, nobody pays attention to them because nobody knows how to pay attention to them. I think I brought up in some of the classes some of the examples, like for example when I was reading the memoirs of the dissidents and Levko Lukyanenko was a very famous uh, dissident leader and eventually was in part of Ukrainian parliament and so on. He died just a couple years ago. And uh, he was writing about how the collective farms functioned in the Soviet Union, because we never think about the economy of it, right? We think about the horror of it, but, you know, it's kind of all emotional. But what's the practical way it was done? And he's saying that they were selling the goods to the government, right? Whatever you grow, you sell to the government, except that in all republics except Russia, uh, the government pays them three times less. So basically, Russian collective farms receive three times more money for their products than every other republic in the Soviet Union. <laughs> so that, that one simple economic pa- uh, like fact would uh, cast a lot of light on things, how things were running in the Soviet Union, but nobody in the, in the actual Soviet Union even knew about this. So it's the same with, uh, with these kinds of things. It's, you know, people may know the word revolution and they may even understand that, okay, there was a hunger strike and some of them even might have been there. But then if it's not then becoming part of historical narrative, it's, 
very hard to keep track of what it actually meant, the meaning of it. Like we, we like to think that history is about putting down facts, but it's much more than that. It's actually choosing which facts we keep as a part of our, you know, something that constitutes us and which, which facts we do not. So that was my, I guess, rationale. And I, re I, I know it's, it's an imperfect effort and it could not have been perfect because just like my friend Stepan, I would have to have written like five novels going back in time up until 1917. I am also just so fascinated in the start of this movement and how I, I think that there's a tendency to idealize things or I, and idealize the start of things. And I, I, and maybe this is an attempt to kind of re revisit some of that and to not mythologize and, and, and so on. Yeah. And, you know, when I was talking to people, uh, the people who actually were there, it's funny how even we imagine that our memory is this perfect thing and we'll never forget things, but it's not true. And our memory is also structured by this bigger historical narrative. So people remembered, but they didn't really remember details as much. They remembered we stood there for freedom. But when you start asking, what were you dressed like? Not everybody was recollecting these things. It's much harder. The work of memory is so conditional. We kind of think it's just this uh, biological process that just happens. And it's totally not like that. You see that ideology actually interferes with it very much. I want to move on to uh, another one of your books. This book is called Love Life. I, I had the pleasure of actually reading this one. And as a kind of transition between the books, I want to touch on just how different I think they must be because, because my understanding of Yvonne and Feba is, you know, reading so many of the reviews that I did is people talk about just how real and lush and but also true the characters were and how full they were. And when I read Love Life, that's not the sense that I was getting at all. Like literally from the very beginning, you know, despite the fact that I was, you know, reading this in, a, in another language, not my native language, the characters all seemed like more like caricatures <laughs> to me. Like they were doing all of this absolutely ridiculous stuff. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell if it was because I was reading in a foreign language and like half the, the stuff was just flying ahead, or if it's because they like really were meant to be that almost caricature light. And so before we get into that book, I just want you to say a little bit about, okay, do you think that these two books are, are entirely different? Do you feel that they're similar in certain ways? When you set out to write your more recent book, was your was your mindset like, I'm, this is going to be a very different book and, and so on? Or did you have thoughts like that? Okay, so returning to Ivan the Febo, I guess in English it would be Ivan and Phoebe. It's supposed to be uh, translated, actually an expert excerpt was translated by uh, Riley Costigan and Isaac Wheeler. And now uh, Deep Vellum of Dallas is hopefully uh, working on it. Yeah, it's a, it's a different translator. Yeah, and uh, Ivan and Phoebe are actually names of two people. Well, one is a made up name. Phoebe doesn't exist as a name in, in Ukraine. And uh, it's uh, about uh, a couple, he takes part in this revolution and then he comes back to his native town, which is my native town of Ujhorod. Of course, his parents insist that he should marry because there's nothing else to do in Ukraine, Soviet Union, you know, it's get born, get married, get buried. And that's pretty much it. Uh, so he marries and he kind of plunges into this uh, Rather um, traditional marriage. What I mean by that is more like uh, a certain inertia of uh, Soviet and post-Soviet life and also the 1990s. So and yeah, you're right. There's like lots of what you'd call reality in sort of about uh, how life was back in, in the 1990s. And it was very drastic. I, I think that also might be related to something that you've touched on, which is just the fact that you know, there was this whole saying that there's no sex in the Soviet Union, right? And that has a very physical connotation and that literally people didn't like, maybe one of the reasons why there was you, you're born, you get married and you die is that there was, there was nowhere to to like escape society physically. Like you could maybe go to the woods, but like, what are you going to do in winter or right? Because you don't have cars and you don't have private homes, so on. And I, that's just such a fascinating Element. Yeah, it, it, it's a very it's a very different life, and yeah, that that phrase that uh, is uh, became kind of iconic about sex in the Soviet Union. I think it's nineteen 
89, it was a telebridge between America and Soviet Union. And the woman meant that we don't have sex as a discourse of sexuality, right? Meaning like porn magazines, discussions about sex, like anything, because everything existed on the same plane. Whether it's sex education, prostitution or porn, it was the same for the Soviet person because they haven't seen any of it. So that's what she meant. But of course, Americans were scandalized because how do these people even procreate them? I guess they found a way. So <laughs> some eight. <laughs> well, you get married and then it's uh, in the house right above your grandparents or something. Right. Well, and then the thing is with grandparents, there just was no, uh, there was a housing crisis that lasted from the very first to the very last days of the Soviet Union. It's even in our folklore and it's in uh, Soviet literature. And it's like famous phrase from Mikhail Bulgakov's novel, Master Margarita, that Kvartirny Vapros только испортил их. The apartment question has spoiled the people, meaning spoiled in a sense that it harmed them, not spoiled as, as in a you know good sense. Yeah, so getting married was the only way of kind of having some life of your own. Otherwise, you're just stuck with your parents and you cannot, you, there's no way to even go meet people. So what are you going to do? And yeah, there's no cars to drive. There's uh, no uh, travel to be done. So that's why we all read a lot of books. That was the only thing we still could do. So, and uh, uh, kind of bridging from here to the question about uh, the other novel, it's not exactly a, a caricature per se. It, you're right, there's a lot of references to other books and everything. It's an exploration of a sort of a different part of life. It, and it's part of a bigger project, bigger cluster of novels, most of which are sort of sitting in my computer waiting for me to get back at them sort of have done i guess that's yeah and then now the tough thing is how, how do i in what order do i arrange my questions about the book it's fine you can start with <laughs> it's the book that nobody's read anyway so it's like no matter what you and i say they're gonna be <laughs> well i think the place to start is humor because okay. i i was i was just laughing so hard at some points at this book and again the the other thing that comes up is i don't know if if, if certain parts are supposed to be funny or not. <laughs> um, and like the reason I said caricatures is because some of these characters are doing things that like are conducting themselves in ways um, that the book mm -hmm. is set in the United States, but um, there's some moments where I can see Americans conducting themselves in ways. And then at some points I'm just like, no. Uh, and, just, <laughs> and one moment that comes to mind is when Sebastian, who is, is one of the main characters, is talking to Yora, who's, who's the main, who's really the main character of the book. And they're having this relationship and there's another character, Bonnie, who appears, and Sebastian actually offers to show Yora uh, like videos and photos that he's made with his other girlfriend, and it just sounds so ridiculous. Um, and yeah. he, caricature of masculinity, and there's you know also Bonnie, who's just like this over the top like sexualized, almost like Lolita-like figure. Oh, she never actually appears in the novel. We're just here talking about it. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's just like stuff that we've heard or seen about her or it's through the nightmares or the, the dreams about what, what must be happening. Well, that's actually fa fascinating listening to you because I've never had, like since the book, I never tried to kind of market it much abroad for a number of reasons of which I could talk, but kind of cautiously because since people haven't read it, it's like, you know, it would, it would be different. Difficult. But uh, usually it's Ukrainians who read it and then they read it and they're like, oh, wow, how interesting this kind of conflict or of cultures or dialogue of cultures. But it's not usually not the person from the other side who's kind of looking at yourselves, right, in a way, right? What are these people doing? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of, yeah, I see what you mean now when you say kind of caricaturish. Well, you know how in the West now, and I'm saying West in a very wrong sense, I guess, because you can't really lump, you know, United States and Sweden and everything. But that's, but at least for a person from Eastern Europe, that's what it seems like. You know, West is this monolithic West, right? And that's how they approach it. And then they get burned because, of course, they are not sure what they're doing. So the, let's just say in the United States, there is this culture of perfect life that we are all supposed to try to achieve. And of course, you know, it's impossible because, first of all, it's impossible by definition. We're not supposed to have a perfect life, as any Buddhist would tell you. And second, it's uh, based on the wrong premises, right? It's all these trainings of how do you manage time better? But then you ask yourself, what do you need this time for? You need time to manage more time better, right? So that you could work more. And then you work more so that you could manage time better. So it becomes a kind of a loop. 
And the same with, uh, you know, Love Life. Love Life is definitely an ironic title because it's uh, how do you organize love life? And then there's this series like you should, you know, if you, if you just read dating advice, it's uh, I think it stupefies you much more than somebody's novel. It's kind of like, I mean, I don't read them now because, well, I'm not writing about it for, for a moment, but I actually read the whole wall of these books uh, back in when I lived in Essence, Georgia, to kind of familiarize myself with how this culture does love, you know, because it's like, it's not apparent. It seems like you know everything, but that's a huge place of failure for somebody who's not from this culture, any particular culture. And it was amazing because the advice ranged from sort of like play hard to get for women to kind of like, you should definitely date more than one person so you could have a better chance of meeting the love of your life. <laughs> I mean, for somebody who grew up in a country where there was no sex, this is uh, this sounds like just as realistic as could I please ask Elon Musk to take me to Mars or something tomorrow? It's a nonsensical situation, right? Or it kind of has this whole issue of, um, I don't know, people playing with various ideas but not in any ethical or responsible way. Uh, kind of like say, like, we are ethical polyamorists, but then they don't even know the meaning of the word ethics. So it sort of becomes a problem. Right. And so there's such like an, a ridiculousness and absurdity in the serious, you know, literature itself about this issue. And so, right. And it, given the fact that the title of the book is sarcastic and biting, it, it, it sets you up that the the book is going to be in kind of this humorous tone and like another place where that humor came through for me uh so much is there uh yora has a dream about bonnie and what she must be doing and the end of the dream ends with bonnie literally multiplying herself like she's just like multiplying and multiplying the machine of the machine of the cinema yeah <laughs> that's what it's called in the dream and i just thought i just thought that was hilarious and so do when you're writing the book do you have a clear idea of this part is going to be funny or do you just kind of Think about the ridiculousness and leave the you're, you put the onus on the, the reader to just pick what's funny for themselves. Or, and well, I never try to be funny. Yeah. And I guess some people would call me gloomy and I like to think I'm funny. And the other thing is that it's again, it's very much depends on which side of the uh, from which culture you're reading it. So uh, for you, as for an American, it might be more sort of on the funny, ironic side, because there's a tradition of that. Again, talking about how knowledge is constructed, how memory is constructed, how our tastes are constructed, right? Uh, you have a huge tradition of ironic writing. In English was born for irony, so to say, right? It goes from, I don't know, Alexander Pope to like our days. There's, there's irony everywhere. There's a, actually pathos is kind of discouraged, right? You, you kind of opt for irony, sometimes even sort of simplicity. Well, there's a kind of more flowery, baroquish tradition, but still. And then you have these writers like DeLillo and, you know, there's like a cohort. Whereas Ukrainian literature for a long time was kind of kept in this very sentimental puddle. And there were reasons for that. Colonialism and then, uh, you know, physical destruction of people. And I'm, I'm not even talking about the 20th century yet. Then, uh, you know, there's a joke that the only two people who kept running were Nechui Levitsky and Panas Mirnin. That's because they were basically their emotional setup as persons was being very tedious, boring and hardworking, you know, the type. And then this is the kind of nerds that everybody laughs at. But then these nerds are the only ones that remain in the history of literature because everybody else just gets burned because they are too emotional or something because they cannot stand the horrible life they, they have. And uh, I always joke that my personal enemies in Ukrainian literature is uh, the excessive use of adjectives because everybody likes to put three or four adjectives to every noun uh, trying to make it more expressive and again that goes back to the sentimentalism basically which we never quite got rid of sufficiently so and then it's the problem of you know translations of world literature which we're still catching up with you know that usually if you end up in a colonial situation you're not supposed to have a language of self-description so basically during during ukraine being part of the soviet union there was maybe like 20 books and philosophies that were translated at all into ukrainian you're supposed to read in russian right so and that all matters it's like a little by little little by little and then eventually all you have is people who have not put that passes away so for them uh, everything that for 
or a person from the other side can be funny would be kind of tragic because they don't understand what's happening. They're not even used to a particular language, you know. If you say to an average American kid that um, something like, you know, polyamory is the way to go. You're supposed to date five people to, to get love. Well, they might laugh or they might say, okay, whatever. Uh, but if you say that to a, uh, to a good Ukrainian girl from a provincial town, she'll either get angry or she will get horrified and act angry because you don't want to reveal how horrified you are and personally attacked because it would be kind of working against everything she was ever taught, every value she was ever given. So, and I think these deep conflicts of culture are lately happening more and more and will be happening more and more. Hey, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that it's so interesting to think about like young Ukrainian women, for example, who are still raised on classics of Russian literature that have this vision of love yeah, that I think you're suffering. referring to. <laughs> suffering as love, right. And then... Or suffering as a value, you know, you're supposed to suffer because it's good for you. Yes, yes. And that, and that comes from, you know, Pushkin and so many other places, Lermontov and, you know, all these other places that we know about. But on the other hand, you're also in this country that's watching Western movies and is trying to Westernize and liberalize. And you obviously have such contact with this other vision of romantic relationships. And so I'm trying to imagine what it's like for somebody. And it's probably like you're being torn in both ways constantly and you're trying to put them together, but maybe they don't actually fit together. And so that, that leads to conflict. Yes. I am just uh, looking at one particular conflict of two particular countries, but I think it's everywhere. And besides, uh, you know, the fact that U.S. culture is also, it's not uh, homogenous. We have lots of various things here talk about polyamory and people will think that I am this big proponent or something, but no, <laughs> I'm completely impartial to, to the idea. But uh, what I mean is that uh, no idea is, you know, good or bad or should be taken in its absolute value. And here I think we are talking about the doing of, I don't know, global capitalism just as much as, as we are with, you know, what we actually mean when we say culture. I want to ask you about maybe some of the authors or inspirations for uh, this book, Love Life, because the author that it most immediately reminded me of was actually Kafka. And I feel like Yora was kind of like plopped down and she's having to navigate this this castle, if you will, of the complexities of, of how she's <laughs> supposed to go about constructing her love life, given th these complexities that we're, we're, we're talking about. And then that, you know, that brings me back to you, you teach a course here at UT called Satire in Politics. And we, we read so many books, works from our region that are also have this kind of similar satirical, also political tone. So there, there are inspirations both in the region and outside. And so I'm just wondering if any of them came to mind to inspire you as a writer at all? Yeah, I guess you can't separate things at some point. You sort of, the field of ideas you you use <laughs> as your repository becomes so big that uh, you don't always know where ideas come from. Yeah, I like the Kafka reference. That's, that's kind of nice. <laughs> So uh, for those, well, since nobody's read it, I'm, the plot of the story is very simple. So some immigrant woman meets this uh, very dashing, strange man of whom we could talk more because there's a lot to say. Of course, there's some horrible cultural clash that ends in, I could say, a sort of a tragedy both ways. But we actually don't know. That's the thing. These days, you, you try to avoid this role of an omniscient narrator that knows what happened. Or actually, you may know what happened, but you don't know why. And if you don't know why, it's just as well. You know, it's kind of like this history without the actual historic narrative that we've talked about. You know the fact, but you don't know what to do with it. Remind me of Death, Death and the Death and the and the Penguin that we read uh, <laughs> for class a little bit in that sense. Oh yeah, Andrei Kurkov. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very interesting book. Yeah, I think about it quite a bit. I actually keep stumbling upon various memes with penguins. I keep thinking maybe I should send it to these people who read it with me. So I can't say whether there was like one inspiration. I guess my epigraphs kind of give a little bit of a clue. There's two epigraphs. I usually like epigraphs and, you know, title, epigraph, and the first line. This is the triad that pretty much tells you everything you need to know. I teach that to students when I teach them close reading. Look at the title and how it contrasts or plays along with these other things, if there is an epigraph. So there's two. One comes from uh, Victor Hugo from Les Miserables, which was sort of the book to read in the Soviet Union, the author to read. And uh, now that I look at uh, Hugo being actually part of 
uh, of a commercial kind of establishment. You know, everybody saw this hunchback, get down, get down. You know, the, the actual musical is so popular. So it became an artifact of sorts, right? But um, I hate to say, but it has very little to do with the actual novel, <laughs> both novels in question, the Notre Dame and uh, Les Miserables. And of course, uh, during long Soviet summers, there's nothing to do but read and reread, because once you've read, what do you do? You reread. I used to reread books. Now I don't have time for that. So, you know, the influence that you go had on love life of Soviet people, that's a dissertation that somebody will read one, write one day, but <laughs> probably not me. <laughs> So it's uh, no less than Tolstoy and everybody else, you know. And uh, it's also in some senses patriarchal and so on. So anyway, the epigraph is about poverty, actually. Uh, actually, it's uh, from the part that's called Fantine. It's about the mother of Cosette, who was forced to become a prostitute, and who meets this nice neighbor who teaches her how to be poor. So after the dark room, there's a room that is black. That's pretty much what the epigraph says. And uh, I found it very poignant and somehow uh, reflecting this inner trajectories that every person from, I guess, Soviet, post-Soviet origin always expects. You, you expect things to go badly. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's sort of the uh, historic setup. And the second one is Bruno Schulz, on whom I actually did write a dissertation once. And it's about dreams, because Bruno Schulz is the one who is very much what we call oneric, right? He's constantly this dream. And he's called the little Kafka of Eastern Europe, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. But oh, yeah, he very much is. And there's like lots of studies comparing him to Kafka. And he actually either translated or edited the translation of Kafka's trial into Polish, I believe. However... It's unclear what, what was his role there. We kind of don't know. But he was obviously very familiar with Kafka's work. He spoke German. He, you know, shrilled. So anyway, the, it's about uh, the dream that one of the characters had, had about, I believe it was about Jacob's letter, so that he keeps dreaming about this angel whom you have to overpower and press him to the bed. So <laughs> this pressing somebody to the bed as this place of dreaming, as a place of some sort of epistemic insight, this is kind of what it was all about. Yes. And I, I wanted to ask you about that because when I, when I was reading the book and I was reading Yora's dreams, I, I, I almost got the sense like they were so lucid and so funny that I almost got the sense that like these could have been dreams that you or somebody was was having and then like waking up and writing them down. They were that like detailed and lucid. And so I was just wondering, have you ever practiced that kind of uh, what's it called dream recording where you wake up and try to record your dreams in maximum detail? Have you ever attempted that? I, I attempted it. I cannot tell you that I was very successful because it usually lasts for about three seconds and then you'll forget anyway. Uh, and you kind of, I, I, I mean, I never had like what you'd call like a lucid dream because in the lucid dream, you're supposed to wake up inside the dream and look at your hands. It's supposed to be the sign. If you are looking at your hands and you're aware of the fact that you are looking at your hands and can control that motion, means you're lucid dreaming. I was never advanced enough to achieve that. I think actually once I kind of did, but then I woke up and that was it. That was like years ago. Yeah, recording. That's tricky because uh, you have to really, you, you, like everything, you have to work everything. I know how it's done. There's a certain a meditative techniques you do throughout the day and before you go to bed and you kind of wake up and you, so you can have some interesting insights, but you have to be consistent. And with a crazy life we're all having, you know, I'm consistent in, I don't know, feeding myself maybe most of the days. <laughs> so so I, I take it then that you don't take material directly from your dreams. So, but to... See, that's, uh, that's uh, not entirely so, so as well, because um, I think dreams influence us in ways that we don't necessarily account for. So I might as well, I just don't know about it very like, you know, explicitly. Yeah, but uh, I have, uh, you know, read about dreams or studied about dreams enough so that I could construct a dream. So the logic of the dream, so to say, or at least I, you know, I flatter myself that I can. I don't know if I can. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I just, I'm, thank you for, for explaining that. I was just curious. The other thing I want to ask about with this book is you, I read the book and I get to the end and spoiler, you're, you're not warned about this everywhere, but thank God there's an explainer 
that explains all of the references in the book. Uh, yeah, you're I, talking about I, the key, okay. The key, yeah. yes. And so, so I, I want to say that I, I know the story about why it's there, but for me, I, I think it's so brave and impressive that that that, that key is there because it, it just ma- it just it make it shows how complex the book really is, and it actually supported my understanding of why why everybody was so caricature like, right? And it turns out that they're all like tarot, like they're all symbols from the tarot cards. Kind of. Well, I've had a lot of stones thrown at me for that key from pretty much everybody and their mother in Ukrainian establishment. They felt like that that it's being too artificial. That uh, you know, and when, for example, people write and the, some something is a symbol of tarot, like Milorad Pavic, I believe, has a book about tarot, which I actually tried to read, but I didn't get much out of it. But you can actually decipher. Okay, there's symbols there, but they were saying like this is artificial. This is not necessary. But uh, when I was trying to tell them that I was trying to do something other than just uh, you know bring the symbolization around. And they would uh, then get offended that how dare you explain it to us as if we don't understand. Well, and most of them did not because, again, my tradition, the tradition of writing I come from is but by now is informed by so many other cultural stuff that it, it is not apparent. So I felt like maybe it should be explained. My main rationale was uh, bringing about some ideas. Whether people will throw stones at me as an author is one thing, but whether the people will actually think about ideas, that's another. And uh, one of the main thoughts that I was trying to communicate, whether I did or not, it's um, how psychopathic our values have become. The values that are kind of promoted and glorified in anything, love life or just life in general, this achievement, you know, cutthroat, whatever. And uh, I was uh, much informed, like you were asking about what books informed me. And actually, it's very hard for me to think about fiction books in that sense. But it's very easy for me to think about books that are not fiction, that are philosophy or psychology or, you know, stuff around. Yes. In in the footnotes, uh, you you mention uh, like an academic work about like these functioning psychopaths and about how that's... Yeah. And it seems like it's uh, unrelated to literature or life, but it actually very much is. It's Robert Hare. It's called Without Conscience, The World of Psychopaths. Robert Hare is actually a psychiatrist who worked in a prison in Canada. And uh, every other book, or pretty much every book, we could say uh, on psychopaths, you know, these kind of books that they, that they that are a compilation, like how to spot a psychopath next door. It's like, you will not spot that person. Trust me. They're all based on him because he is the one that lays the ground of it. And he's the one who brought in a critical theory, cultural theory, even though he seems to be from a very different place, because he was the one who pointed where in the culture we do that and where in popular culture we do that. So, for example... He's uh, talking about the construction of a, uh, of a hero these days. You know, when we think hero, those of us who did literary studies are like, all, oh, yes, Joseph Campbell, of course, Superman, Jesus Christ is the same story. Well, it used to be. But uh, he pretty much uh, lays force that uh, at some point things change and the hero becomes that person who disobeys rules, who dumps his, uh, who is not a team player, uh, who's a sulky type that achieves everything on his own. And if you look at all these sagas about, um, I don't know, Stallone and uh, whatnot, yeah, it pretty much is, you know, and therefore I, I like the Terminator franchise. Everybody laughs at me, call me Terminator in my boxing class, not because I'm so good at boxing, not at all, but uh, because it's a kind of uh, an ideal cultural counter-hero to that, right? It's, it's, it's a person that's so psychopathic that he's a machine, but that sort of reverses the mechanism, if you know what I mean. So uh, I find that idea of Robert Hare extremely important and I find these values very apparent in every sphere of life and I find us to kind of uncritically, unquestionably accepting it instead of, you know, standing up to it. I think that that key is so key because uh, I I think that a lot of people... That, that all would just fly over their head and they wouldn't have been able to... Oh, and it did, you know, and it does all the time. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, I think it's a French movie called Mon Roi, My, My King. 
Well, it's about a psychopath, and uh, if you read Robert Hare and if you gave it some thought, you see it very obviously. But you should see, you know, it's a separate hell. You see comments that people leave in different places, like reviews about the movie, and uh, everybody from the post-Soviet world uh, reads it as, oh, they just didn't get along. It's just a bad love story. And you're like, no, it's not a bad love story. It's a guy who has a serious pathology, but he gets away with it because this is how life is structured these days these people get away with it and they often to happen to be men because no matter what we say about how feminism won it did not win at all and it all exists in these subtleties of cultures that you cannot take somebody to you know court with to at all you cannot do anything you're just kind of like helpless because you don't even usually have the language to defend yourself because they will thwart it and turn it around you so i'm trying to at least help make that tunnel function through which that language should finally come. Right. And for me, Sebastian, his conduct in the book is immediately ridiculous, like just ridiculous. Like it's just so immediately obvious that this guy is, is like one of the most dangerous, unhealthy people that I've ever seen. And then the, and then the question for me is why is Yora still dreaming about him and coming back to him and it was like funny that was the funny part where I was, I was like why well and see that's another that, that's another thing that many of my ukrainian readers and most of ukrainian critics just didn't get they're like this is some masochistic idiotic woman and i'm like okay but like if you have ever read any files about any kind of violence against women and even if you think about the construction violence against women, violence done by whom there's no agent, right, in, in that phrase. Uh, if you ever thought about what epistemic violence is, if you have ever read this sort of like, uh, you know, some Russian feminists have web pages about it. There's somebody, Tanya Tank, Tank who writes about basically psychopaths. And there's uh, another one that I like reading, uh, Zoya Atiskova. And uh, honestly, compared to them, Yora is like... I don't know, Ruth Ginsburg or something, you know, compared to, to what actually happens to people in real life and how they get railroaded by all kinds of pathological violent behavior that not necessarily manifests as physical violence and is therefore dismissible. And actually, there's lots of psychologists that wrote about it. I mean, the, the main term would be like Stockholm syndrome, but then actually people like Tanya Tank uh, go deeper into it and, and, and explain that any kind of this violent interaction, it uh, does something to our nervous systems. People get hooked on it like on a, on a certain chemical process. You know, it works like a drug. I mean, you would not think that. But it really does. It's sort of a, what they call uh, an adrenal, adrenaline swing, adrenalinovere cacelli. So, yeah, and people are not aware of these patterns and they live like this for our, you know, for hours, uh, for weeks, for centuries uh, around people they shouldn't be with. So, yeah, uh, and Sebastian, uh, I guess, uh, could be uh, more visible for you because you, again, are from this culture. But if it's a cross-cultural conflict, it's, it's much less apparent. So do you feel then that obviously that the target audience for the book is, you know, people in Ukraine? And so... Uh, uh, calling the book a failure is obviously way too strong of a word, but are you disappointed that uh, that whole message seems to be flying over people's... No, I'm, I'm not disappointed at all. I think it's actually picking up. And I knew that it's not going to be fast. It's been five years, uh, but that's nothing. You know, books sometimes wait 40 years to be read. So that's pretty good result. No, yeah, that, that's a good that's a good point. And and what you were just saying is so. And it's heavy stuff. It's not going to be. Uh, no, nobody looks at the pattern and says, "Oh shit, I do that too." For me, it's like these people. This is like caricature, and it, it's it's so ridiculous. But then in the second half of the book, once I saw, I I did begin to see that. Okay, it's not just that Yora is like so head over heels in love, but it really is. It's it's become this huge problem, and then other events in the book begin to show that and then it became almost scary i was like well yeah and it's a, it's a very subtle and i've been talking about it also for a long time and there are other people who are talking about it and again these people that i've just mentioned this russian feminist cluster 
basically the socialization of women. And I think even in the United States, it's very much not perfect, right? But you have to yet meet a Soviet woman who was told by her parents that you can be anything. Yes, you're, you know, you're just as valuable as men. It's just not the message. The message is that uh, even if it's subtle, even if it's not, you know, open, I'm not saying that some people were not socialized differently. I'm just talking about the general sort of situation. And it's always about how you should structure your life in such a way that your marriage eventually will happen and it will be a good one, you know. So I want to touch on this question of in in the inside cover of the book, it's referred to as, in quotation marks, immigrant prose. And I'm, I'm just wondering, first off, well, I guess there's two questions. The first is about your identity as a writer. Do you like to attach labels to your identity about whether you're, again, an American writer, a Ukrainian-American writer, a, a Ukrainian writer? And then within Ukrainian literature... Is there, do you believe there is a subgenre called immigrant Ukrainian literature and should, does it exist? Should it exist? What do you, what do you think about this? Well, question? the more time goes, the more confusing these questions become, not just for me, but for everybody. It used to be that the world was, you know, kind of conveniently divided and everybody was one thing or another. And if one had more identities than one, that was usually a tragedy, you know, like a, think about all the literature of the tragic mulattoes who belong nowhere, right? It's a stereotype, a cliche. It's the same for, you know, if you in Ukraine and it's uh, 19th century and you're Jewish and you love somebody who's not another tragedy. So it, it's, it, used to, it used to be, I think, better defined, but doesn't mean it was a happier place. And now when I read statistics, it's literally, what, one in eight people who is displaced because of all kinds of work migration or, I don't know, refugee problem or something. And there are people who live, you know, we think we live in between worlds because, you know, you speak couple languages, no couple cultures. I do too, right? But what about a person who is stuck in a refugee camp without any rights to any country and no papers? Where are they? What What is the world from their perspective? Is it immigrant? Do they care that they still have a culture? Do they want to join another and I think we will have more and more of that. Um, so on the one hand, the way to answer would be that uh, we we kind of uh, move towards a certain fluidity that we haven't had yet, maybe even. I mean, maybe people had it before, I don't know, Mesozoic era, I don't know what happened then. Maybe Atlantis disappeared and, and stuff. And on the other hand, I still consider myself a Ukrainian writer because I write in Ukrainian. So there's a certain quality to your native language that lets the world the words open up i'm not saying i could not do it in english but it would just be a very different thing and i mean i can but it's usually essays or non-fiction stuff but not not the stuff that has you free associate to just the very sound of of words and 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 so it's not really a political choice or political agenda it's just something that happens it's like a quality of and you, I think you kind of hinted at my or guessed my next question, which is, do you feel do you feel yourself or imagine yourself writing in English in the future? Obviously, there's a big tradition of that and immigrant writers from yeah. the Eastern from Eastern Europe beginning to write in English. Right. Nabokov comes to mind and among, yeah. among others. Do have you had thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, well, I do. Uh, and mostly it's about, uh, uh, like I said, some nonfiction stuff or, you know, something that. That is in between essay, philosophical writing. Uh, I have a propensity to it. And uh, I am in a position where I could explain one culture to another back and forth. So in that sense, yes, because I in inhibit the certain field of meanings. As for fiction... I don't know. It really all depends. You know how they joke that a writer should have a long life because nobody will fight for your work except you, whether to write it or to eventually publish it. And uh, I have so many unfinished things in Ukrainian that are part of this cluster that love life belongs to that um, there's just no room right now for any potential novel in, in English. There's reasons to think about this without optimism. So... <laughs> Yeah. 
So I, the, the last thing I want to ask you about is your Facebook, actually. You're quite active on Facebook and it's actually really refreshing for me to be to, to be someone interested in our region because Facebook for kind of the former Soviet Union is still this very rich intellectual place where people post these long, thoughtful posts about things that are going on, which is just unthinkable to like me and my inner generation because so much of it is lazy kind of trash posting of links. And if we did want to post something long and heartfelt, then we wouldn't do it on Facebook. But you on Facebook do post these incredible things in English and Ukrainian. They're basically like little mini essays. They're so literary and they all they obviously fit within this political satirical genre more often than not. And so two kind of two questions. The first is why you do it. And then my second question is how much of it is related to the fact that you're located in the United States, but your audience is Ukrainian? Because sometimes I have this thought that kind of pops up, which is that obviously not during the pandemic, but Otherwise, if you were located in in Ukraine, say in Lviv or Kiev, then you would be you would have the opportunity to meet with so much of your audience. And so how much of it is it that you're saying something that you maybe wouldn't say otherwise you would say in person and how much of it is, is related to something else? Oh, well, there's uh, yeah, you say it's two questions, which is probably actually more like five, because you and I know uh, that social media, a very particular thing, we actually studied it uh, when we did our study in, in Ukraine, and Michelle knows about this too, so um, that we are referring to a study led by Dr. Mary Newberger, and it had to do with uh, social media uh, use by young voters who were let's just say, instrumental in electing the person who is now the president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, who, as you know, is a comedian. So, and uh, when we were uh, studying this issue, we saw that uh, sometimes <laughs> things <laughs> that happen in social media are completely seemingly illogical, like how can this even happen? So, yeah, I understand why you would be wondering why I sort of, you know, invest all this energy. Well, I, it's actually a much simpler answer and not at all philosophical or interesting. It's simply that uh, just like every other person on this planet, I also can have, you know, a writer's block or some sort of, you know, lack of desire to do something, especially now with the pandemics. I think it reached some catastrophic heights. And Facebook is a low stakes writing. This is something we teach in writing courses, right? That's why we have these little discussion questions or journals that are not structured. Because if something is to be structured, a human being freezes. And especially nowadays, and that's beside the pandemic, we have placed ourselves in this completely impossible situation where we constantly have to have achievements, right? It's another, it's a different kind of adrenaline. You say it's low stakes writing, but for me, I'm like, I couldn't think of something more high stakes than (laughs) writing for my whole audience and then being pinned down to these thoughts for eternity or something. But it's just Facebook. I, I don't take it seriously. Like if I were to take it seriously, I'd freeze. So, and it's, uh, I don't know, maybe it has to do with assuming a certain role of a performer, if you know what I mean. Like you, you have, we all have personas on social media. So what, what my social media would be, then that's not necessarily what my persona would be. And I guess I kind of met with Facebook at the time when it was still possible to mold that persona. And I'll say, I, I do have Instagram, but I never know what the hell to write in there. So I just post cat videos. A friend just sent me a lovely video of a black cat who had this Batman wings facing to him. And I thought that was very nice. So, but I have no clue what else to say. I don't understand that audience or its needs or my role in there, but I keep it because everybody says that I should have an Instagram account because that's where all the young audiences now. So, like my daughter, who's 24, doesn't have Facebook. She only has Instagram. She doesn't miss it. Yeah. So to me, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, just a, a joke, really, you know, Facebook, you know, you write something and then you just post it, uh, you, you steal it from yourself, you make it into an article and yeah, your, your task just got that much easier. And uh, as for reaching out to a different audience, I think you may be right there. I will have to, I'd have to say, I'm not, I'm not really aware of it, whether I write more on Facebook or less if I'm in actual Ukraine. <laughs> But that might be a, a good place to start looking at this process. So, yeah, it definitely means a lot to me to be able to reach that audience. That's awesome. Is there anything that you've watched or read 
recently that you found particularly interesting or inspiring that you'd maybe want to share with our audience? I know that <laughs> I, for one, am always like just so interested by whatever your latest movie or book is that you read because you just have such incredible thoughts about it. So is there anything that recently just kind of touched you in an interesting way? Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you for saying that and thank you for asking. And I have to say that a lot of my choice of what I watch or, you know, not watch uh, is not something anybody else would find appealing. Because I look at cultural mechanisms, I don't necessarily look at the plot or how uh, interesting it is or how artistic even. Uh, bad art had, has a lot of advantages. It shows you the tendencies. Good art only shows you the individuality of a person who actually made it. So. In that sense, there's like lots of, uh, lots of things from different categories that I find appealing, but not all of them I, I like for their artistic value. Some I like because they show something that some other things don't. So a memorable endeavor in terms of uh, at least a film that I've seen. I think you said you watched Troy, was it, recently? Oh, yeah. Well, it, I, I've watched it like 10 times, but each time I notice something about the... Because it's not a movie about Troy, it's more about us, but it's a movie about us in 2004. So it's kind of fun to see how it changed and how Brad Pitt changed, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, some of the elements of it, uh, yeah, it's, it's very funny. Or I like, uh, I sometimes like to watch the shows about some sort of either supernatural horror or serial killer, again, because it kind of plays into this issue of psychopaths that I'm, let's say, interested in. And it sometimes has very fun details that you miss, again, because it's so bad, usually. So if it's something is bad, you see the, what the Germans call the zeitgeist. And I feel bad. I, I kind of want to say something good about something. <laughs> but the only two books that I've uh, read and kind of had a thing uh, are in Ukrainian and, and none of them is translated yet. So it would be kind of hard to explain what the merit was. And it would not necessarily be something a U.S. audience would easily connect with, you know, this post-colonial problems of a nation in Eastern Europe. Well, Dr. Lutsushina, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. I, I know that our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. The pleasure was mine. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you 